We'll get the class underway. First of all, quick announcement. I made this announcement last Sunday, but as a reminder, next Sunday and for three Sundays following, we have Zev Rosenberg teaching f from our internal booklet, uh, Responding to the Call of Christ. And I'm not sure exactly what he's doing with that booklet. Uh, I spoke briefly to Dan Moretta before they left for Israel, and Dan said that uh, Zev has put something together in, to connect the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures with that book. Um, and then following Zev Rosenberg's four Sundays, we're going to continue on with a study from that document, the, the booklet responding to the call of Christ. And I think Pastor Dave is going to be leading some weeks after Zev Rosenberg. So that begins with Zev next Sunday. Today completes uh, our series with Dr. Lloyd and the uh, rhetoric and framework of the arguments of scripture and the influences culturally. It's been a real education for me and I think for all of us. It's one of the layers of, of scriptural study that we don't get to very often. Uh, we kind of stick to just the words and we don't quite ever dig into the influences uh, culturally and uh, the way arguments were developed and made over those centuries. So let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be here together, friends and classmates and our teacher. We ask your blessing on the students gathered here and a particular blessing on Dr. Lloyd as he has completed, I believe, four times with us now uh, over a three or four year period. And we ask your blessing upon his future studies and his future teaching with young students at Kent State. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Part of, uh, part of doing the last day is uh, the pressure of the last day. I feel like, man, this ought to be like the best one. As long as you're thinking that, you're probably not going to be able to write anything. At least that's what I tell my students. I said, you just have to write. So I followed my usual path, which is I just go, I meditate for a while, and something pops up into my head, and it seems to be the direction to go. And... Um, I felt like the best way to circle this whole thing was to go back to Philo and connect him historically to other figures. Now, I want to introduce, every time I try to have a little image to think about, um, this was developed in the Middle Ages. Uh, as the sh it's called the Shield of the Trinity. And you can see that God is in the middle with Father on the left and Phileas the Son on the right and Spiritus Sanctus, Holy Spirit, at the bottom. And you're supposed to meditate on this to understand something about the Trinity because the Father in est 
Wait, I can actually use my shadow finger to point to that. Pater es Deus, God is, or God is the Father, Fa the Father is God, and each one works that way. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and you see what I'm saying? So not, 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 is, is, is. <laughs> okay, um, but actually this was developed on the idea of the trivium, and the ancient people believed that the, the school was based on three pillars, or its own trinity. Uh, and as you can see, grammar is on one side in the place of the father, or it, you can see that this was used as the chart for the other. So it was grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So ancient, the ancient educational system was based on the trivium, Grammar, logic, and rhetoric. But of course, grammar didn't mean what we take it to mean. It didn't mean, um, whereas logic and rhetoric, I think, are similar to what we would say today. Um, grammar to them meant like the, the structure. You have to think, they think of language as the gift of the gods, right? Or the gift of God. And so the structure of language is the structure of the universe itself. So if you study grammar, you understand the universe. Okay. So that's the trivium, and the trivium is a systematic me method of thinking. In other words, in order to understand something, I have to approach it through grammar, through logic, and through rhetoric. In the medieval university, the trivium was the lower division of the seven liberal arts, uh, comprised of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, input, process, and output. So grammar is the input, logic is the process, Rhetoric is the output. All right, following in the footsteps of follow, early Christian philosophy began an attempt to reconcile mythos, logos, and rhetoric. So I'd like to modify this a little bit and say that in the way that I'm approaching it, and I don't think I'm out of line with the way they understood the word grammar, is that um, that figure of the Trinity would be mythos. And so this is where I've been giving my talk on these three, on the role of mythos, logos, and rhetoric, the trivium uh, to understand the world. So the input comes from the society, the stories, the traditions. The process is analyzation through logic and the presentations through rhetoric. So from this point of view, the mythos are the cultural structures. So bigger than the grammatical structures, grammatical structures would actually be a part of the mythos input from the cultural stories and beliefs. Logic would be the process of reasoning, or as you've seen over time, the belief that um, Jesus himself, or the son and Philo's idea is the divine son, is logos, logic. And rhetoric's the ability to express logos and mythos effectively to an audience. Okay, so where am I going with all this? I wanted to look at the beginnings of Christian philosophy. So these are the people who are uh, directly in line with the apostolic chains, and these are figures that emerged over time. But I really want to focus mainly on guess which city? Alexandria. Because this is the birthplace of, guess what? Christian philosophy. And it makes sense because it is the home place of philosophy itself. Early Christians were slow to develop a distinctly Christian philosophy when they did. Their philosophical environment, their mythos, 
was Neoplatonic. This mindset directly influenced the historic development of Christian philosophy and theology. As I said, it begins in Alexandria. Alexandria Greek thought exercised the strongest influence on the Hebrew mind, and I'm quoting from various sources here. The Septuagint was translated there, as I talked about before. The Bible was translated there. Philo um, belonged to a priestly family, as we've talked about before, and he was convinced the Old Testament could be combined with Greek speculation. His philosophy embodies such a synthesis. So everything was bright for a Christian theology to mix with Greek philosophy. And the person that emerged to do it is Titus Flavius Clemens. They call him Clement of Alexandria because there was another Clement of Rome. <laughs> All right, so he began a catechetical school in Alexandria. Actually, he didn't begin it. He took over a catechetical school in Alexandria, and he was the first Christian to develop Christianity as a philosophy. He's born about 150 AD, although they're not quite sure exactly when he was born, but that's a good guess. And he's the first of what we would call Christian philosophers. He rejected, now, I bristle every time I read sentences like this anywhere. It says, though he rejected the crude speculation of the sophists, the sophists got a bad name, and they got a bad name. Guess who gave them a bad name? Plato. Plato did not like the sophists because he thought truth was in an ideal world of forms, right? The sophists taught that truth is whatever we decide truth is. You can imagine that even now people would not be happy with sophists. But basically they saw truth as a convention. If people agree upon something, then it's true. Plato hated them for that. And he told them that, you know, basically he said that the sophists, um, well, that rhetoric, what the sophists taught, was just evil. But the thing is, what did he use to combat them? Rhetoric. Yes, he didn't see, as Aristotle did, that rhetoric is a tool, and it, you can use it to help someone find the truth, or you can help obscure the truth. It doesn't matter which one to the, and, and the sophists were kind of wrongly accused of that. The sophists didn't believe that there was no truth. What they did believe was that in order to have society, we can't have truth already decided. It needs to be debated, it needs to be thought about, it needs to be taken into the uh, arena. And guess what? This is the foundation. The sophistic idea of truth is the, is the foundation of democracy, that no one owns the truth, and that truth comes through dialogue. That in politics, and this is, where, this is where Aristotle saw the truth of rhetoric, that in politics, we don't have solid answers. We might have solid answers in terms of some things, but we don't have solid answers in terms of, of in politics, it is whichever one emerges is the one that we agree upon. So the sophists get kind of a bad name. And later on, uh, there's a book, Susan Jarrett wrote a book called Rereading the Sophists, where she talks about how Plato and Aristotle were both anti-democratic, and so they necessarily kind of pushed sophistry to the side, whereas it wasn't as evil as it sounded. 
But what Clemens was trying to say was um, that he thought philosophy held an element of truth. All right, so he's an early theologian and head of the Catechal School of Alexandria. And he actually was, he talks about that he started his journey to find, um, basically to find Christianity, to find his relationship with Christ at Athens. So they suppose that was his birthplace. They're not sure. He became a convert to the faith, and he started looking for a good teacher. So he attached himself to different ones, but finally found Pantanus in Alexandria. And as he said, his teaching found rest. All right, so Alexandria. It was natural that Christian speculation should have a home at Alexandria. The city was the time of, of, it was a cultural center, a trade center. There was a great university there under the patronage of the state. The intellectual temper was broad and tolerant as became a city with so many races mingled. And philosophers were critics and eclectics, and Plato was the most favored of the, of the old masters. So the time was right. Jews were there in very large numbers. They breathed in, I like this quote, breathed in its liberal atmosphere and had assimilated secular culture. They were formed the most enlightened colony of the dispersion, and among them, Philo emerges, and this author called him the Jewish Plato. It also was the seat of a Christian, uh, pseudo-Christian group called the Gnostics. I'll get into that later. I don't have time to get into that in any kind of detail. So that's one of the depictions of Clement. If you look at Clement, at depictions of Clement, he apparently had a huge head. Because <laughs> that's the one thing you see in all the depictions. <laughs> now, I don't know whether that's supposed to symbolize that he was an intellect. I, you know, I really don't know. I don't think anybody sketched him in his own time. Brainiac. All right. So it's no matter of surprise then to find Christians affected in that turn of a scientific spirit, a spirit. In other words, Christianity didn't necessarily need to develop a philosophy. It, it could have just stayed a theological point of view, a religion, without a philosophy. But it seemed in that, in that area, it was natural for it to emerge. So at an uncertain date in the latter half of the second century, a school of oral instruction was founded now. The key there, and that's why I put it in red, the key is that it was a school of oral instruction. What kind of school was it? It was a school of rhetoric. Most of the schools at the time were either of philosophy or of rhetoric. And it's interesting that the early Christian ones emerged not as schools of philosophy, but as schools of rhetoric. Lectures were given to which pagan hearers were admitted and advanced teaching to Christians separately. So they had teachings for both. Basically, it was a, it was a regular school but there were elements just for Christians to study. So it was a Greek school of rhetoric, and schools of rhetoric always included science and philosophy. You said something a little bit ago that I'm trying to reconcile, and I can't. What does Christianity look like without, it, without the philosophy attached? Can you briefly... It looks very un-Greek. It doesn't look at all like we think it looks now. You'll see. Watch what happens. All right, it was, a, well, uh, for one thing, the divine logos. I don't think that would have been part of the study. So I don't know if the Gospel of John, what it would have looked like without, without Greek philosophy. All right, it was official institution of the church. 
So this was a school, it was a rhetorical school, but it was also supported by the, by the Christian church, even though when we're thinking the Christian church at this point, this is really early. There's no church at Rome. This is not, it means it's supported by Christians. Pantanus is the earliest teacher and his, whose name was preserved, and Clement first assisted and then succeeded Pantanus in the direction of the school, about AD 190. All right. Clement said that passages of the scripture that declare the insufficiency of human wisdom, which we looked at over the weeks, that warn against being spoiled by philosophy, applied only to sophism and epicurism, but not to what he considered the best of philosophy, which would be platonic philosophy. He maintained that philosophy brought the Greek mind to Christ just as the law brought the Hebrew to him. To Clement, philosophy provided a natural framework for the expression of truth. Having devoted most of Book One and some of the remaining sections of Stramana to a defense of the philosophical approach, Clement proceeded to build on a Neoplatonic metaphysical foundation what was intended to be a Christian philosophy. Okay. To back up, what the heck are they trying to do? At this point, I think what he's, all he's really trying to do is say, we live in this society, in this world, and philosophy is respected, and philosophy is a part of everything that we do. As you'll see in one of the slides coming up, um, all education in the ancient world was Greek philosophy, was based in Greek philosophy. The Romans had not developed any of their own philosophy. The Romans studied the Greeks. So it was natural that he's going to think, how can we frame Christianity so it's understandable to a people who are educated in Greek philosophy? To him, the God of the Christians is the God of Plato now worshiped by Christians more perfectly than by Greeks. And that's exactly what Philo had said earlier. According to Clement, and like Philo, Plato plagiarized revelation from the Hebrews. This gave the Athenians highest ideas of favor, flavor of divine authority in the estimation of Clement. It's not really true, it's impossible actually, but uh, at the time they thought that Plato must have been influenced by Hebrew thought. The most important influence within the Roman Empire, like I said, came not from the Romans, but from the Greeks. Roman, well, if you think about even Roman religion, it was just a mirror of Greek religion. Romans never really, I remember when I took art appreciation, the Romans never figured out how to make Greek statues. So you can always tell a Roman statue, something's always holding it up. <laughs> There's always a robe or a tree. <laughs> The Greeks could make a freestanding human, but the Romans never figured it out. They did some stuff well, but they didn't imitate Greek culture very well. Roman power and Roman law controlled the military, political, social, and economic life, but Greek thinking controlled the minds of men. So when you were educated as a Roman, you were educated in Greek philosophy, rhetoric. Greek philosophy tried to build a world on the meaning of life and the world to come, to affect the practical life. And this is why philosophy was taught. It wasn't about, a lot of times we think of philosophy as just esoteric, just nonsense. But that's not what they were learning because Aristotle took philosophy and made it about rhetoric, about political life. So it was about politics, it was about laws, about art, about social relations. So it was a very practical approach to reality. All right, so Clement... His work contains about 700 quotations from 300 what we would call pagan authors. 
This is my point. He realized his missionary task would be hopeless unless he was able to interpret Christian truth in terms which educated inquirers could accept. That's what he's doing. In other words, he understands the mythos, logos, rhetoric triangle that I've been talking about. His aim was to convert members of the community of educated Alexandrian Greeks, some of whom previously might have been attracted to, guess what? The Judaism represented by Phado. Just as Philo had presented Judaism in its highest form of wisdom, remember we talked about wisdom last week, the means by which humankind would come to see God, so Clement earns that Christianity was the end to which all current philosophy had been moving. So he's doing it for two really key rhetorical purposes. One is if I can put it in this language of the educated, then we can change education itself. What is he doing? He's running a school. We can change education, we can enlighten people, and we can show how everything moves together toward a Christian world. So some scholars call him, I can't make this stuff up. I just found this guy saying this. Some scholars call him the Christian father. All right, let's look at some of what he said. In the Exhortation of the Greeks, he starts by comparing the music of Amphion and Orpheus from the Greek mythologies to the true music of heavenly Christianity. So there's this idea that everything the Greeks saw was in the right track, but it just wasn't enlightened. Christianity was the new melody superior to that of Orpheus, Christ the incarnate God. He says, becoming man in order that such as you Gentiles may learn from man how it is even possible for a man to become a god. All right. He also... um, the purpose of the school was to spread Christianity. The purpose of, of being a Christian, he believed, was, he says, to be a Christian and not to try to influence one's neighbor was to be an unprofitable servant. Christians should become preachers and writers of the world, or the word. The word of our teacher did not stay in Palestine as philosophy stayed in Greece, but was poured out all over the world, persuading Greeks and barbarians alike. All right, he uh, it's interesting, Stromata is the name of one of his books, and it just means the strewing. Yes, we get strow to strow things around from that. Like you throw straw on a floor. <laughs> so I think it's a very humble title for a book. Oh, just some, some tossings. As many men drawing down the ship cannot be called many causes, but one cause consisting of many for each individual by themselves is not the cause of the ship being drawn, but along with the rest. In other words, not one guy with an oar is doing the ship, but everybody working together. So also philosophy, being the search for truth, contributes to the comprehension of truth, not as being the cause of comprehension, but a cause along with other things and cooperator, perhaps also a joint cause. And as the several virtues are causes of the happiness of one individual, as the sun, fire, and the bath and clothing are all getting one warm, so while truth is one, many things contribute to its investigation. So it's a very broad and welcoming view of truth. The truth is in a lot of places and that it all helps you get to the one goal, just as everyone working together on a ship or as clothing pulls together to make us warm. But its discovery is by the sun. He also says this, the same God that furnished both covenants, that of the law and of philosophy, was the giver of Greek philosophy to the Greeks, by which the Almighty is glorified among the Greeks. Now, this might remind you of a couple of things that Paul says, and I think he's in line, he's developing this idea that Paul sets up in Romans. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He says also there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, which he blesses all who call on him. He talks a little bit in Romans about that everyone's accountable because all of us are exposed to the world that God made. So even if you're not exposed to the scriptures, you still see the world that God made, and therefore you have a testimony. All right, now, one of the things, and uh, there's a quote from Tertullian later, some of the early church writers didn't like this. They thought they were putting Plato into Christianity, and that Christianity could be understood and should be understood apart from Greek concepts. They lost. But even Clement said there's a danger to this. And one of the dangers was this Gnostic school. They were based in Platonic thought, and they came up with the idea that, uh, that actually follows some of the same things that the Christian writers do, the other Christian writers do. But their idea was, Plato said that the world, that God is in the ideal, and that, um, you know, like you throw a pebble in water, they're concentric circles, that there are concentric circles coming away from God towards material world. So the material world is so far from, it's like eight steps away from God that it no longer really bears that resemblance to the ideal. And he, he conjectured that human beings had fallen from that space here, their souls had fallen into the material world. So his idea of the material world, the Gnostics took that and thought uh, the body is bad, it must have been created, the bodies must have been created by a demiurge and in between God. And so they've therefore said that Jesus could not have ever lived in a body. And that he, because he was pure spirit, no way God could live in a body. So, Clement though, unlike Irenaeus that just rejected the whole idea of platonic ideal, Clement said, well, there is a true knowledge and a false knowledge. And he, he thought that you could still take these ideas of Plato, place them in the right context, and still find meaning. This is what he said. The Hellenic philosophy was not, by its approach, make truth more powerful. But by rendering powerless the assault of sophistry against it, and frustrating the treacherous plots laid against the truth, it's said to be the proper fence and wall of the vineyard. That's a very interesting image. Christianity would be the vineyard, and philosophy is actually creating a wall of rationality around it to protect it, in his view. All right. Eventually, Clement um, retires, and he is succeeded by Origen, this guy. That? He's a saint. All these people were sainted later. Clement was sainted, and so was Origen. He was born in 185. Origen was barely 17. There was a bloody persecution of the church in Alexandria. His father, Leonidas, had given him excellent literary education. Leonidas was cast into prison. And Origen wanted to die with him as a martyr, but his mother stole his clothes. Isn't that a great story? <laughs> Rather than showing up at jail nude, he, he sent a letter. 
<laughs> telling his dad to persevere. Leonidas was martyred, and his belongings were confiscated, so Origen labored to support himself, his mother, and six younger brothers. Wow. By becoming a teacher, selling his manuscripts, and then a weird line, and by the generous aid of a certain rich lady who admired his talents. I have no idea what to do with that. All right, so <laughs> Origen succeeds as Clement as the head of the catechetical school. And in fact, he just sort of assumed Clement left and he just moved in. <laughs> but then he was confirmed later by the patriarch. Origen's school was frequented by pagans. It became a nursery of neophytes, confessors, and martyrs. So m- many of his students actually were martyred. Plutarch, Serenus, Heraclides, Heron, Serenus, and a female catechumen, Horaeus. said that he accompanied them. Uh, a person is studying to be a uh, Christian faith, studying the Christian faith. Catechism, you know, um, now we do it with 12-year-olds or whatever. You're taught the tenets of the faith. All right, so what's his lineage? What's his pedigree? He's a very young, and he's in the, uh, in the teacher's chair. Um, he recognized the necessity of completing his education, so he started going to school himself in the philosophical school of Aminasakis who was a Neoplatonist. And he taught particularly Plato and the Stoics. So full circle, back to the same things that influenced Philo. In this, he was following the example of predecessors Pantenus and Clement and Heracles, who succeeded him. So his student also became the leader of the school. Afterwards, when the latter shared his labors at catechetical school, he learned Hebrew and communicated frequently with Jews who helped him in his difficulties. Quite an ambitious fellow. All right. According to Origen, the Bible does not discourage the pursuit of philosophy. And he said also, logic's great utility in defending Christianity, though the greatest arguments establish the truth of the gospel are not natural, but supernatural. Guarantees of miracle, fulfilled prophecy, miraculous expansion of the church in the face of powerful prejudice and government opposition. Let's look at some of the things he said. Philosophy and the Word of God are not always at loggerheads. Neither are they always in harmony. For philosophy is neither in all things contrary to God's law, nor is it in all respects consonant. And this, these, here are the distinctions. Many philosophers say there is one God who created the world. Some have added that God both made rules and rules all things by his logos. So he's focusing on the same things that Philo did. Again, in ethics and in their account of the material world, they almost all agree with us. But they disagree when they assert that matter is co-eternal with God, when they deny that providence extends below the moon, when they imagine that the power of the stars determines our lives, or that the world will never come to an end. It's interesting he picked those things. He also wrote this. And by the way, last time I talked about my professor, William Lane, how he always told me, never be afraid of truth, right? And that truth was in a lot of places. And that we should never be afraid of truth. We never should be afraid of debate. When um, things would come up and people would boycott things, he, talked about, he would talk about, you know, 
our efforts don't do a whole lot to change things. Um, that truth will just emerge. That truth is truth. And very much what Gamaliel said. If Christians are of the truth, we can't defeat them. And he, he just took that point of view. And it's interesting because he, I didn't realize how much he was influenced by the Christian fathers that he taught me. This is what Origen said. If we, too, ever find evidence of wisdom in a pagan writer, we should not automatically reject his ideas just because of his name. The fact that the law we follow was given us by God does not entitle us to swell with pride and refuse to listen to the wise. No, as the apostle says, we should scrutinize it all carefully, retaining only what is good. Okay, so this leads to a point that I'm hoping that you're starting to see just from these examples. There was an openness at this time period in Clement and Origen to Greek culture, to the world around them, to making connections with people. And it was, it's kind of amazing in the sense that what happens later is the church becomes more and more insular, more and more divided, more and more attacking heretics. This begins to start happening. But at this point, I just see them as just so full of energy and just going like, wow, there's so many connections that I can see and they're establishing schools and there's just an openness to interaction with the world. And you can see it here. His teaching philosophy, I got very interested in this. What was the basis of all the teaching? He didn't see rhetoric as evil. He saw it as something we needed to know. Because the basics of rhetoric is you're trying to communicate with an audience. You have to understand your audience. You have to place things in the way that they understand. Origen started teaching with rhetoric, some scientific knowledge, physics, mathematics, geometry, and astronomy. So the trivium and the quadrivium. But it was all a preparation to be studied by a study of philosophy, which he meant both Greek and Christian. He wished his disciples to know something about the philosophical theories and not stress one of them. <laughs> I wish I could have had time to look up this guy, St. Gregory the Wondermaker. I've never heard of him before, but it's one of his students. Gives an account of this system. In every philosophy he picked out, I'm guessing that it's one of his students or someone who admired him later. In every philosophy, he picked out what was true and useful and said it before us. Yeah, one of his students. Well, what was erroneous, he rejected. He advised us not to give our allegiance to any one philosopher, even though he should be universally acclaimed as perfect in wisdom, but to cleave to God alone and his prophets. All right. So I'm sliding forward in time a bit to St. Augustine. So these are all saints. These are all considered uh, the early church fathers. Augustine is a, a, from a different period, so he's not one of the, the earliest church fathers. Clement and Origen both are. But the reason I skipped to Augustine is because basically Augustine's ideas became the foundation of the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so we already know that, that because Greek philosophy is so prevalent in the Greek Orthodox Church that it went one way, and Sophia becomes a figure in itself, as we saw last week. But it also, 
uh, Neoplatonism had a huge effect on the shape of Christianity. So Augustine was given Platonic books when he was visiting in Milan. Augustine en ended up being a bishop in Hippo, which is in uh, North Africa. The dominant Neoplatonist image was the one highest level of being from which emanates and radiates all else that there is in concentric circles. Now this is a Neoplatonist idea. Remember I told you about the, the rings? The circles of being turned back inwards toward the original unity and thereby define themselves in relation to it. The outermost circle, the material world, turns away from unity into multiplicity and fragmentation, finally to nothingness. So he sees death and everything as a result of that being in that outer circle, that everything just has to dissolve away, whereas the inner circle is eternal. Even this material world, there is the human mind, which is connected to the center. All right, so that was one thing that influenced Augustine heavily, that idea. Also, he was very influenced by Plato's myth from the uh, book called the Phaedrus. Anybody familiar with this, the chariot, chariot of the soul? We got the phrase chariot of the gods from this. You remember that movie? <laughs> Do you wonder where we got the phrase? <laughs> Comes from Plato. <laughs> All right, Plato tells this story about the soul, and it's an allegory. He says that the soul is a winged charioteer driving winged horses. And basically he has this idea that all souls are just flying around <laughs> in these chariots out there and that are in that inner realm. They're in the, in the heavenly realm. The souls are there with God in the realm of the perfect. The chariot of the gods, the Theo, the, charioteer, uh, the charioteers and horses are all good and all eternal. But the chariot of the demonis, including human souls, we forget sometimes the word demon is also just the Greek word for a human soul. They believe that everyone had a personal spirit, a, a daimon. So that gets changed a bit over time too. The charioteers reason, the right horse, Thumos, is eternal and good, but the left one is mortal and evil. Okay, so the right horse is when we use reason and rationality for good. Like if I use it to protect the poor or to make good policies and to uh, help people, then I'm using my rationality. But we also use it as a way to make our passions happen and selfishness, and that would be the negative side, the left side. I apologize to anyone's left-handed. This has been going on way too long, <laughs> this hostility toward the left. All right, about one-third of, of all souls just behold the perfect forms with some difficulty because they've got that one horse that's trying to stray, but, you know, they, they can see the perfect forms. And about a third see at least partially, but the ones who completely lose all vision of the perfect, of God, of the center, they fall where? To earth. And they're trapped here for a period until they can learn to see the world of forms, which is what his philosophy was all about, that the philosopher sees that world and brings it to others. Okay, this becomes, in Augustine's thought, the city of God. He identifies um, the Platonic system as the facile princeps among philosophy, the, the chief among all philosophies, and was the closest to the approximation of Christian truth. 
So he identifies two cities, the earthly and the heavenly, which are formed by the separation of the good and bad angels. So basically he takes that idea of the fallen angels, the fallen souls, and they live in this bad imitation of the beautiful city of God. So the heavenly city is the platonic ideal. He also bases this idea of original sin from Plato's fall of the soul into the material world. The idea of original sin, Clement had spoken a little bit about it, in, uh, some, uh, but it never was developed into a, a philosophy and finally an established doctrine of the church until Augustine took the ideas of Plato and basically said, you know, that we're born sinful. And he began to reinterpret all the scriptures saying that it, we have a sin nature, which don't necessarily imply that you're born sinful. It just means that because we grow up in a sinful world, we're going to sin. We have to sin. Um, he says that it's original. He never really saw the problem. If, if we're born in original sin, then why are we accountable? That's a different problem. He also took a third point of view. He said evil was understood as the distance from which, uh, the further from the source, from the center, than evil. So he sees death, evil, fallenness, all towards the outer parts of the circle. So he's heavily influenced by Plato. But I think you can also see, there's, do you see a difference between the way he's using the Greeks and the ways that the other two did? You know what I'm saying? All right. <laughs> I've had a longer time to think about this. <laughs> to them, I see two motives. One is they see truth in it, and the truth is close to what they see in the scriptures. And the second is they also see that their whole world already believes this and already is taught this as a part of their education. So the best way to change the world and to bring Christ to the world is to do both of those things, to focus on what's true there and use the language of that to talk about Christianity. That's what Philo did. That's what Clement did. But what's happening here with Augustine is that he's, he's taking it and he's making it real. <laughs> Am I making any sense? It's, kind of, it's not like the Greeks are seeing the same truth as anybody else. He's pretty much saying we can take a Greek idea and we can actually structure the foundations of Christian faith through it. Not understand Christian truth by it, but structure through it. You see the difference? That the Catholic Church becomes based on a, a Neoplatonic point of view. Rather than using Neoplatonic point of view in order to reach people to Christian truth, these things become Christian truth. Do you see the difference? So we end up with the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine of the fallen souls. These weren't doctrines before. They were places to reach across. And something has happened. And I think we can see what happened in his attitude toward rhetoric. <coughs> he was trained as a rhetorician, interestingly enough. Um, before he became converted. And so when he's writing his, uh, his own memoirs, when he's writing his own philosophy, 
He says, well, I suppose everyone's going to think that I'm going to tell you what Christian rhetoric is. And he basically says, well, you can learn rhetoric elsewhere. That's not my purpose. It looks what he says about rhetoric. It has a huge impact on the history of the church. He says, the art of rhetoric is available for enforcing either truth or falsehood. So he takes that kind of liberal Aristotelian view that rhetoric is a tool. But he also says this, in the case of a keen and ardent nature, fine words will come more readily through reading and hearing the eloquent than by pursuing the rules of rhetoric. So he's already saying we shouldn't really teach rhetoric, we should just read things that are well-written. I find that kind of circular. How do I know something's well-written if I don't know anything about rhetoric? Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, and also I find some problems in what he's saying anyway because um, who does anything skillfully? I mean, you learn something and then it becomes a part of you and then you speak. It's not like I am with the rules of rhetoric in front of me trying to speak. Am I making any sense? I learn them, I embody them, and I begin to use them. But he creates this divide. And it's going to have a huge impact on the history of the church. He says, I think there are scarcely any who can do both things. That is, speak well and think of the rules while speaking. Well, that's true. I, I get what you're saying. Nevertheless, in the speeches of eloquent men, we find rules of eloquence carried out, which the speakers did not think of as aids to eloquence at the time when they were speaking. Again, true, whether they had ever learned them or whether they never even met with them. It's because they're eloquent that they exemplify the rules, not that they use them in order to be eloquent. Okay, do you see what's happening here? The church is going to take rhetoric and push it to the side. Whereas there were schools of rhetoric that included philosophy, <laughs> now there will be schools of Christian thought with rhetoric pushed to the side as a study of just eloquence. All right, in a, in a longer quote that I just kind of threw in uh, so you'd have more evidence, he says, uh, he cannot speak eloquently to retain a memory of the words of scripture. Basically, he's saying some people just aren't good at rhetoric so they should just quote scripture. And then here, he says, and, and, uh, it, it, you shouldn't study rhetoric, you should just listen to good rhetoricians. All right, so where am I going with all this? All right, the presence of all this Greek thought did make people nervous. Like I said, Tertullian said this, Christian doctrine should be free from Free, uh, he said, free Jerusalem from Athens and the Church of Christ from the Academy of Plato. He lost. The writings and legacy of Father directly affect the Christian philosophies of Clement and Origen of Alexandria, founding fathers of the Christian Church. They sought to unify Greek and Christian teachings in order to reach the people of their time, especially those favorable to Father's ideas. The school that both of them headed was a school of rhetoric and philosophy geared toward Christian education and proselytism. So their goal, they set up schools of rhetoric in order to teach Christians, but also just to teach anyone who came to the school. And basically, they established what we would call liberal arts colleges. Christian liberal arts colleges. All right. Now let me go back to what I suggested earlier. The Logos... Mythos, Logos, Rhetoric, Trivium. 
Trivium means the place where three roads meet. So I'm suggesting that we could put mythos here and understand everything I've been saying for the six weeks as that I think, to me, truth emerges when these three are working right. When we understand the world that we live in, when we're being rational and reasonable and logical, and when we're using rhetoric as a way to find truth. But what I don't find when we start getting to Augustine or sentences like ours in, if we too find evidence of wisdom in a pagan writer that should not automatically reject his ideas because of his name. Now, it wasn't that Augustine didn't say anything like this, but he starts to use the Greeks differently. The influence of Greek ideas continues in the later periods, especially Augustine. Augustine, it continues all the way into Thomas Aquinas and into the modern church. The use of Plato was becoming less about reaching audiences and more about establishing doctrines. It became establishment of doctrine. Changing attitudes are reflected in the attitudes toward rhetoric and rhetoric as training and debate and dialogue, once part of Christian education, was sublimated to rhetoric as the explication of scriptural truth. Now, as a person who studies rhetoric and rhetorical history, this is a depressing moment for the history of rhetoric because rhetoric becomes eloquence and it gets that bad name that it still has today. Well, someone will say, is that true or is that rhetoric? I'm like, you can't state something without using some form of rhetoric. You can't state a truth or a falsehood. You can't lie or tell truth without some form of rhetoric. So you can't say there's a difference between truth and rhetoric. So we fell for it. Plato said that and Plato influenced the whole history of the church and history of the world in so many ways. All right, but I believe the trivium is weakened when the truth is already decided, that we don't have that ability to debate and to think and to question. We lose something, and that's what begins with Augustine. And actually, it doesn't begin with Augustine because the, the, the Christian persecution of heretics began a couple of hundred years before. And so you can see there's this brief moment where there's this openness and connection with Greek culture, and then Christianity gets established, and they start to turn on each other. But I believe Christianity once thrived in the place where the three roads meet, rhetoric, philosophy, and culture. And at that time, Christian education was, guess where? On the cutting edge, they were starting new schools in Alexandria, the most happening place at the time. So this was an important moment. So I'm just asking as my last question this week, who are the descendants follow Clement and Origen now? Thanks. I like that you have that look on your faces, which is, that was a lot to think about. It wasn't that I have been blundered to death. It was more like, wow, uh, that's a lot to think about. As you were talking about um, Augustine and how he was, was differentiating from the predecessors from a couple centuries before. And I'm probably drawing too big of a boundary, but I'm trying to make a point. Sure. And that he... Uh, 
he differentiated the way we can absorb the, the, the traits of rhetoric by just reading good literature. Right. The, the person in America that I thought of when you said that was Abraham Lincoln. Part of our mythos about him is that he learned to read almost by himself with the Bible from the light from the fireplace. Right. Now that's probably partially real myth as well as, as well as mythos, but he became an eloquent, logical writer and speaker without perhaps studying rhetoric in a classical way. Right. So he, in a sense, absorbed it the way Augustine was talking about absorbing it. Well, what happens historically is mostly because of Augustine's influence that teaching in the Middle Ages, you were taught rhetoric, but the way you were taught rhetoric is you, you just sat there and you read Cicero and you read um, Plato, you read the great authors. Uh, of the time. And no doubt, you can become a better speaker if you sit around and read Cicero. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but I notice this since I write. Whoever I'm reading, I tend to write like them. So if I'm reading someone from Britain, I might have a little more elevated style. <coughs> he has a point. But the thing is that rhetoric became just imitating. And it wasn't about innovating because you couldn't innovate. You couldn't question. And the people who did usually ended up burnt, mm -hmm. the people who raised these questions. There's an interesting guy, Pico de Mandurlo, I can't say his last name, Mirandola, who lived in, in Italy in the 1500s. Or, no, wait, 1400. Well, I don't know. He lived in Italy. And he actually did something very, very similar to these people. He went and he studied um, Greek philosophy. He read everything you could possibly find. It was at, at that time when they were beginning to rediscover Aristotle and all that. And he went and read. I, I he was only 22 years old, and he, I can't believe the amount of things that he had read. He also studied the Kabbalah, the Hebrew Kabbalah. He studied everything he could get his hands on, uh, uh, and he came to the Pope, and he said, I want to debate these 200-and-something issues, just like Luther does later with the, what was it, 19, wasn't it? 95, yeah, or 19, where'd I get that? It had a nine in it, 95. So he came and he asked the Pope, can we, we debate this? He says, this is fantastic. We, I, I see all these truths in all these different places. And, and they said, no. <laughs> that was the end of Pico's career. But you can still find the book. It's called Oration on the Dignity of Man. It's a really amazing book. Another thing I thought about was when you were talking about one of those early philosophers who thought that our objective was to spread the word and teach, teach through Christian philosophy and how through the ages that, that has still gone on. About the time of Abraham Lincoln, we were training up little kids in school to read with the McGuffey readers. Right, you had and if you read the McGuffey readers, you can get them online and just read through them. They are really a, a catechism of Christianity. And it's, it's a foreign concept today, the idea of teaching children to read by, by stories about the evil of working on the Sabbath. <laughs> it, we wouldn't have that now in America in, in, in public school, but right. for 75 years we taught kids to read with Christian philosophy stories while, while they were learning to read. And 
so here we had McGuffey, who was a Presbyterian minister, by the way, writing up all these books of, of how to teach kids to read, and that became their little reader books in school, and it was a Christian philosophy going back to the second century, in a sense. Yeah. Teaching people. Yeah. Yeah. Doctrine is when something becomes all right. <laughs> so is a doctrine a philosophy that's been set in stone? Yeah, I don't really want to say that. <laughs> it's a it's a philosophical conclusion that's been set in stone. Okay. And I don't think philosophy lends itself necessarily to that. The idea of philosophy to me is that every you generation. Keep has to find its own truths and its own answers. It doesn't mean that there is no truth necessarily, I mean, like, that they're, they're not human truths that are true for all time, but it, it's just that every generation, every new people has to find their way. I, I not through doctrine. We, doctrine's like a lot of times a cheap shot. It's like it's already decided, so I don't have to think about that. I, I think or that. Or can be. Well, there's a lot of people that can't think. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who don't want to think. And they just want people to tell them what to think, so right. they don't have to go through all that. Right. So, so I can see what you're saying about each generation has to find its own. Right. Um, and I see this in the, in the early teachers. I see this openness to people being able to think. I don't think in their schools they were doctrinaire. I don't think they taught people this is the way you have to see things. They were more dialogical. And that, the church loses that, I think. I, I think the church in general lives in fear and and I think it's sad that they do because we have the God who is overall omnipotent in control of everything and he can handle it so us to be afraid of it is kind of silly but but I think it's this this sense of fear that we have to nail down the truths exactly and and then you know because we're human and because we're flawed, every truth that we nail down is human and flawed. And, and the answer really is to look to the, the truth, who is God, and, exactly. and find the answers from him. And that's what I find in these two early teachers. Even, even some of the things that Origen and Clement said later on were disagreed with by, by the church, and they weren't necessarily what we would call completely orthodox. But what I see in them it's, it's this openness that I don't often see anymore. This openness to dialogue, to listening to other people, to finding truth in what they're saying, to create those bridges. It was, I think, kind of a beautiful moment. And it wasn't, it wasn't without flaw, but considering the time period, that was an amazing place. And I gave a talk, uh, last year I talked about missed opportunities that the church had, and that would have been on my list as well. That was an opportunity, I think, to create dialogue with the world. And it didn't go that way. It went more doctrinal. You have to believe this or you're out. When I was in college, I, when I would write something, it would be, there'd be long, flowery sentences and so forth like that. Then I got into medical school, and you don't do you don't talk that way. Mm. You in short, choppy sentences so they can put that thought to work, to bed, and 
go on another one. Right. So my writing style changed entirely after medical school. Yeah. I think it's true. Well, one of the things that I do even now as a teacher of writing is have people look at writing. I still believe what he said was true, but I think that it's more true to say that it's a combination. The rhetoric is learning how rhetoric works, not just imitation. I don't think that does it totally by itself because I can have them say, well, imitate the style of somebody and they're not going to write as well. But if I say, look what they did here, how this paragraph sets this up and then the next paragraph takes apart why that doesn't work and then the next paragraph when I do that then they get the idea how it works on on both levels to me that's what rhetoric is got my attention there all they were you were talking about law with the Greeks yeah and my lawyer friends have always said it was Romans that had more influence on our law the Romans do now yeah they have well, the Romans had influence on, on our, law, our legal system now and on the church, on the way the church is set up. Because, you know, it was set up in Rome. The, I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church. They did. Uh, the Greeks didn't have as much influence on law. I kind of wish they did because they, uh, they invented democracy, and the Romans experimented with it a couple of times, but for the most part it didn't work in Rome. Just a thought about the right hand, left hand thing. <laughs> if you know the culture didn't have Purell or soap and water. Yes, I <laughs> get where you're going. <laughs> I know what you use the left hand for. Right, and this was the food and the life hand, the right, right. hand. Right, so. it's, still that, it's still that way in India and exactly. in the Middle East. They have to. Yeah. So when he sits at the right hand of God, it's the, li- the right is the life hand. It's the hand. life hand. We need to think that things past are over and done. Yes, and that was fine, but the, the idea of making people with, that are left-handed feel substandard, an unfortunate result. Yeah. One other thing I want you to notice the class has been dwindling the last couple of weeks. And that is not because you're not interesting. It's because many of the people that come to this class are in, uh, they're over in uh, Palestine. They're in Palestine, yeah. I get that. But thanks for reminding me. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you so much uh, for coming. We really appreciate it. One of the words that I've not heard much of is experience. Is experiential reality a part of more a part of the mythos or part of our developing rhetoric or both yes (laughs) thank you (laughs) yes it's i think our experience creates the mythos we we experience the world and, and so we explain it through stories and through interpretations and then we use rhetoric to just to explain those, put them in the language. I think, yeah, that's really a good, a good way to look at it. Thank you, Keith. It's been great sure. having you here for six weeks. Sure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.